0: So today is Palm Sunday when we celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as king. And this, of course, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read about it in the Old Testament. We read about him coming into Jerusalem in Mark in the New Testament, but we're going to go back And we're going to study one of the Old Testament prophecies where God told his people beforehand what would happen. We're going to see that there's a command given to them. And that command is that they are to rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly. And that command connects to the promise and it connects to the the fulfillment of that promise, that prophecy, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and it, and it also comes forward to today. The people in the Old Testament were waiting for the Messiah to come, and so we wait for his return. And so in a sense, this sermon could be preached on Palm Sunday, or it could be preached when we, when we think of uh, Advent, in the Advent season, when we remember his first coming and being born, there's this, there's this sense of repetition that that as the prophecy is being fulfilled, it's being fulfilled more and more completely. And each time that we see it fulfilled in, in one small bit or another piece of that, that prophecy being fulfilled, We have one more opportunity to respond by faith, to respond with rejoicing, because it is good news and it is worth celebrating every time. And so that is a a perfect excuse for us to celebrate Palm Sunday, just to remember it once a year, to celebrate Easter, to celebrate Christmas, not because these days are anything special, but because what they stand for is very special, and we are to rejoice. So please stand as we read from Zechariah chapter 9. It's almost at the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah Haggai. Zechariah, Malachi, Zechariah chapter 9, and we're just going to read verses 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I already said, the sermon this morning is going to focus on that command to rejoice greatly. Right there at the beginning, rejoice greatly. And I myself need to be reminded to rejoice quite frequently. It wasn't that long ago that I preached another sermon on the necessity of rejoicing. Uh, I'm not worried about overdoing it, because this is a command that we're given over and over and over in the Bible. God commands us to rejoice, and if we can't rejoice, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Which is not to say that there is not a time to mourn, and we'll get to that here in this passage, in this sermon. But we need to be reminded, we need to remember that this is a command and then we need to figure out how to obey it. How are we going to rejoice greatly? What are we going to rejoice about? What will that look like? Really, as we, as we think about the children coming in, as we think about Jesus entering Jerusalem and We read about the joy of the people at that time and their celebration. That ought to be contagious to us. We also should come away from Palm Sunday with a great excitement and a real happiness to be a part of God's work. To see God doing his work. we ought to be unable to contain our smiles and certainly not uh, too proud and too dignified to cheer and shout. When we remember that Jesus, our Messiah, has come and that he will come again. But there are, of course, many things that prevent us from rejoicing. The people who Zechariah was speaking and writing to also had many excuses for not rejoicing. So Zechariah, uh, writing in the Old Testament times, which means you're at least 400 years before Christ was born, right? Because there was a period of 400 years silence, What was going on in the time of Zechariah? Well, first of all, there were really high taxes. How many of us rejoice over high taxes? Nobody rejoices over high taxes. Some people rejoice over high taxes for other people, but nobody rejoices over high taxes for themselves, right? What else was going on? Well, Jerusalem which was the center of their culture, the center of their worship. It really was what everything revolved around. Jerusalem, their capital, what represented the the glory of the nation of Israel, was not yet rebuilt, was not completed. And then, of course, even worse the center of the, that center was what? The temple. And the temple wasn't completely rebuilt. The foundation had been laid two decades earlier, but it still wasn't complete. Now, let's just pause here for a second and say, time frame, two decades What was going on two decades ago in America? A lot changes in two decades, right? And what was going on two decades ago in this church? It's a joke, right? Twenty years ago, this church this church wasn't here. And so the time frame that we're working within when when we think things are moving slowly. God is not slow as we count slowness. Right? And so, was God at work in the time of Zechariah? Yes, that's right, he was. He was at work. And is he at work today? Yeah. Even though Jerusalem wasn't, wasn't rebuilt all the way, was he at work? Even though it was taking a long time, was he at work? Yeah. Even though the, there had been a start and then things had sort of just kind of not been going the way everybody wanted them to with the temple, was he still at work? Yeah. He was still at work. What else was going on though? Well, the people were still living under a foreign power, under Persia. Of course, Persia hasn't been around for a long time as a, nation, as, a, as a powerful kingdom, right? The empire of Persia. Maybe some of you kids who are better trained in history can tell us a little bit about that. But <clears throat> on the time frame of what was going on, that was a long time ago, right? But at this time, when this book is being written, Persia was still around. Not only was Persia still around, but the people of Jerusalem, God's people, were controlled by Persia. Which means that these high taxes that they're paying—where were they going? Not to Jerusalem, not to the rebuilding of the temple, not to not to uh, the coffers of uh, a king who was just and reigning in, in, for the benefit of them as a nation but to this foreign superpower, right? To Persia, exactly. Not a place where you wanted to be sending your money, even if you wanted to pay taxes. Nobody wants to send them off to... I mean, it's bad enough paying taxes here in America, but can you imagine if you had to pay your taxes to Germany? What good is that going to do? There are many things that can prevent us from rejoicing. Many things in our lives that may mirror some of the things that were going on at the time that Zechariah was writing. One of those is that the people were still not following the Lord. And for the godly, there is much sadness In that, knowing that God's promises are judgment unless his people follow him. That's his promise. There's this covenant, right? And the covenant is that he will be a God to us and to our children after us. But it doesn't end there, right? he also says, if you obey me and keep my commandments. And if you turn away from me, then I will turn away from you. And we see this story repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. We see it at this time that during the time of Zechariah, there were many, many people who were not following the Lord. And so, Was there anything to rejoice about? Well, apparently there was, because that's the command that they're given. Rejoice, and not just rejoice, but rejoice what? Rejoice greatly. Now, as I said, there are, of course, some of the same sorts of things that can weigh on us, robbing us of the joy that we ought to have in the Holy Spirit if we are Christians. Your own situation might weigh on you. And your situation could, could include any number of things. It might be poverty. It might be debt. It might be loss of a job. It might be having a job, but you don't like it. It might be difficulty sleeping. It might be sickness. Sickness might lead to difficulty sleeping. It's been going on a little bit in our house. It might be separation from those that we love. What's your situation what are the what are the circumstances of your life that cause you to when when I say rejoice you say why should I I say you know <clears throat> we're always inclined to say why should I whenever anybody tells us to do anything <clears throat> excuse me um, but especially when the When when the command is about our attitude, when the command is about our emotions, rejoice greatly. How many of you have ever told your kids, be happy? How many kids have you ever had your parents tell you to smile and be happy? Does it feel ridiculous when your mom says, smile and be happy? Yeah, because you're not happy, right? She wouldn't be saying, be happy, smile and be happy to you. Your dad wouldn't be saying, quit crying, if there wasn't something that made you unhappy, if there wasn't something in your circumstances that made you unhappy. You're unhappy, typically, for a reason. And even if that reason is not a very good reason, still, you're unhappy. And so, to be told, okay, now be happy. That's sort of weird, isn't it? It's always felt weird to me. But Jesus has come. And so God says, rejoice. And and here's what he says. He says to his people, before he sent his Savior, before Jesus has come, he says to them, rejoice. <clears throat> so, being told that we need to change how we feel, it's not something that we like to be told. There, there's, I think there's probably hardly anything that's As irritating to us as being told to be happy when we don't want to be happy. I just can't think of many more things that are, that just go completely against because what, what, you could be told to go get dressed when you would rather keep playing Nintendo or whatever you're doing, you know, you go get dressed. Okay, well, I don't really want to, but I guess, you know, like, got to get dressed eventually, so, you know, I guess I'll go do that. But to be told that your feelings need to change and that your feelings are wrong strikes us at the deepest level of our hearts. Because your emotions flow out of What is in you? What's deep within you? You're feeling that way because that's the way you, you want to feel because that's the way you want to respond to the circumstances that you're facing right then. And so, whether it's, uh, whether it's because you got hurt and you're crying, or whether because simply you didn't get what you wanted, and so you're angry and upset, to be told, Stop it. Be happy now. It's to be told, stop being who you are. It, you have taken it on as an identity, if you will, right? And what, and what this passage says is, no, no, no. Rejoice greatly. Why? Because your identity is What? O daughter of Zion. You actually have to change that deeply to rejoice when you're unhappy. It really does strike at the heart of you know your your deepest core. And this is why it really is no different. The the um, the call to repentance for sexual immorality when, when we feel like it's so deep within us that this is what we have to be doing, or when we feel like it's so deep within us that that we have to be a girl when we're a boy, or when we feel like it's so deep within us that that we need to love somebody and be united with somebody of the same. Sex is us. These sins, we've, we've taken them, they're coming so deep out of us, right? They're so, they're so core to who we are that we feel like they're just a part of our heart. And to, and to get rid of those would be to change completely who we are. And that, and that's right. It is. It's changing completely who you are. And it only happens if you are part of the daughter of Zion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. And triumph is a battle triumph. Shout in triumph. What does that mean? Triumphal entry. That's what... That's what Jesus did when he entered into Jerusalem. He had his triumphal entry. How did he triumph? What was he triumphing over? Well, he was triumphing over our sin. He was triumphing over his enemies. He was triumphing over our identity as enemies of God. So what's in your own situation? Maybe it's just the fact that we're still struggling with the same old sins. And that's so frustrating and irritating and discouraging to us. And so I say, rejoice. And you say, why should I? And I say, because those same old sins are forgiven if you put your faith in Jesus Christ who entered into Jerusalem on that day to the shouts and praises of people who wanted something different from him ultimately. And yet, if they had been silent, the rocks would have cried out because that's how amazing and joyous the work that God is doing truly is. So why won't you rejoice? Because I don't feel it. I can't control how I feel. I don't feel happy, and so that's just the way it is. You can control it. You can control it. Well, yeah, you can't control it without the help of God. If it wasn't for the fact that God was doing miraculous things, there wouldn't be anything for you to rejoice over. There wouldn't be any way for you to truly rejoice. There wouldn't be any way for you to rejoice greatly as the daughter of Zion in triumph. You wouldn't be able to do that. But even if you couldn't do that, I got news for you. You can still control your emotions. You're still in charge. And I know because I've been there facing that decision, whether I'm going to continue to be angry, get more angry, or decide not to be angry. How many of you have ever been there? I mean, <laughs> and you think, but the draw, it's so much. I, I, I can't stop. And it would feel so good to just be more angry because then I could go and I could throw something at the wall. How many of you have ever hurt yourself because you were angry? I remember one time I was so angry that I was riding my bike like a maniac, just trying to get the anger. Uh, actually, no, not trying to get the anger out. I don't know what I was trying to do. I was trying to... I was trying to demonstrate how angry I was while I was riding my bike. That's what I was doing. And you know what happens when you demonstrate how angry you are when you're riding your bike? You hurt yourself. You crash your bike. That's how angry you are. Yeah, you hurt yourself, and I hurt myself. I was trying to demonstrate by, like, being hard on my bike. But, you know... My bike didn't care. It's just an inanimate object. You are commanded here by God. Rejoice greatly. Why? Your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. What does that mean? Well, that means that all of those things in your circumstance, whatever it is, that's making you unhappy, that's making you sad, that's making you angry, that's making you, uh, you know, when my wife asks me whether I'm angry, I say no. I'm frustrated. Okay, fine. Whatever's making you frustrated. Whatever is causing you to not be rejoicing. So whatever it is that you describe as your feeling at that time, worry, fear, anger, discouragement, frustration, just plain sadness, right? All of that, put that on one side, and now I have something to tell you And this is, this is the the best way. This is the best way to control and to help your kids control their feelings, right? To give them good news when they're sad is always the thing that works best to help them cheer up, right? Stop being sad. Tomorrow, grandma is coming. Stop being sad. I have good news for you. Stop being sad. You can have a cookie. <laughs> That's enough oftentimes, isn't it? Like, okay, you know, <laughs> I guess I'll give it up. It's, it's, it's a lot nicer to be happy. Well, here's the good news. What's the good news? All of, everything on the one hand is just your misery and your anger and so forth over here. And on the other hand... Your king is coming. Your king is coming. It's only good news if you're a good servant of the king. If you're a bad servant of the king, if you're an enemy of the king, then it's not good news. Right? And so an awful lot of the people in Jerusalem were not singing his praises, but were angry that he was coming into Jerusalem. At all an awful lot of the people, it made them even more uh, worried about the future when they saw Jesus come into Jerusalem. But if you are a servant of the king, finding out that the king is coming back, it's glorious. It's delightful. It's wonderful. It's worth celebrating. And it's worth celebrating over opposed to against all of the bad things that you can pile up on the other side. And why? Well, because the king is able to put it all right. You see? A cookie doesn't put anything right, you know? And yet it's enough for us most of the time. That's how ridiculous our frustration and anger often is. But there's many more things, there's many things that are deeper, that can't be solved by a cookie, that can't be solved by turning to alcohol, that can't be solved by turning to anything except for the King of Glory. you struggling with the same old sins is one of those things. As a matter of fact, oftentimes what you turn to is the same old sin. But beyond our own situation, there are other sad things. Thinking about the state of our nation can be a very sad and very frustrating endeavor to ask yourself, what's going on in this country? What frustrates you? Is it the economy? Probably not right now. Maybe ten years ago. Is it the fact that you can't tell the difference between Republicans and Democrats? I mean, that's frustrating. Is it loss of liberties? Loss of privacy? Is it our national debt? That could tie back to economics or the economy. Is Obamacare still making any of you frustrated? How about foreign wars? Radical judges, inept politicians or corrupt politicians. You know what frustrates me probably more than all the rest of those? Bureaucratic bloat. Drives me up the wall. Having gone through adoption, it's enough to make you scream and pull your hair out. It's almost the least of the concerns there. (laughs) But when you've had to deal with it. What about moral decay? Or the breakdown of the family, which is still continuing. The number of children born out of wedlock, the growing hatred and intolerance of Christians. Any number of these things could cause you great sadness, great fear, cause you to think that you are perfectly justified in refusing to rejoice. Or maybe not the state of the nation more frustrating to me is the state of the church. this last weekend uh, or no during during this week rather went to my grandmother's funeral and some of the things that happened, During our time up there, we're just mind-boggling in how it showed that evangelicalism has not yet reached the bottom. It has not yet reached its low ebb. And then I watched a service from Crossroads this week. And that was mind-boggling. If you haven't ever, you should. Unfortunately, that will make you count as an attendee at Crossroads. They will count you if you watch one of their services. Um, But that's okay. Or you could go. They They have a service Saturday night. Right, yeah, um, worth doing, and then, if you can't figure out what the problem is, then come talk to me, because there's there's a lot of problems, but the thing is, I think the the biggest problem is that nobody knows what the problems are. It's just so um, it's just there, there's just such fundamental, basic things that it's hard to even figure out how to get started in talking about it. And that's the biggest church in Cincinnati. I think they're in the top 10. Uh, They might be number 12 in the country. Uh, Definitely in the top 20. I think that was the list I was looking at was top 20, right? Um, And I thought they had 12 locations, but they were very clear in their service last week. It's 18 locations. are growing faster i was reading really old numbers i don't know <clears throat> and so what can, what can i do can i can i little old me do anything in cincinnati to help people begin to see the necessity of learning basic christian truths Well, I can do a little bit, maybe. That's why we're here, right? And of course, having gone through this last week and then, and then watching that, my temptation is to just say, ah, it's hopeless. There's postmodernism everywhere. Everyone's rejecting truth. At the best, you could call it spiritual weakness in evangelicalism. But really, it's much worse than that. False teachers are being embraced. There are divisions and factions in the church. There's cults. There's tolerance and even embracing of immorality. There's men building their own kingdoms, their own reputations, glorifying themselves rather than God. The church in America is unhealthy. Do we have anything to rejoice about? Yes, because the king is coming. I mean, that's like, if it wasn't for that, then the answer would be, nope. If it wasn't for that, then the answer would be like, not only... Do you not have anything to rejoice over? But you know, you may as well give up. This city is never going to be rebuilt. These walls are never going to be completed. This temple will never be... But God says to his people, Rejoice greatly. Shout in triumph... Because, behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just, and he carries salvation with him. He's endowed with salvation. And how does he come? Humble. Mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt the foal of a donkey, and what will he do when he arrives? He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. He will speak peace by ruling from sea to sea. And to think of the, at the time that this prophecy was given and these people were told to rejoice how long was it from that to when the gospel entered China Australia And yet that it's the promise And it's happened He has fulfilled his promise. His word has gone forth and been proclaimed around the world, bearing fruit in tribe and tongue and nation. And so, yes, many of these things in your own life are very sad, are very painful. Many of these things in the life of the church, in this church are sad and painful. Many of the things about the American church in general are miserable and very, very problematic. Many of the things in this nation are terribly immoral. The law is not just. It leads to the murder of millions. And yet, Yes, we ought to mourn over these things. But we're also to rejoice that the king is coming. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, as he called God's people to repentance, and they stubbornly refused to hear, stubbornly refused to listen and repent. And he wept over that. He wrote a lamentation. It's called Lamentations. wrote more than one lamentation. And so, yeah, there is much to mourn over. In fact, Jesus himself wept on this very day that we're celebrating. In Luke 19, 41... The 44 we read, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And yet, God gives the command rejoice because his message is peace he comes victoriously he comes triumphantly he comes establishing creating peace how by ruling by ruling in his victory over his enemies and here's the here's the choice that's before us we can rejoice believing this to be true, knowing what it means to receive peace from him, or we can be crushed in Jerusalem, as part of Jerusalem, because we refused to rejoice, because we refused to acknowledge his rule, because we refused, what does it say? If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. Because we don't know what makes for peace and we reject the things that make for peace. What was it that made for peace? What makes peace? His death on the cross is what makes peace. And that's just completely... The opposite of what they wanted. What they wanted was for him to establish peace by what? By destroying his enemies. By 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 kicking out the Romans. By stopping them from paying taxes. They wanted him to undo all of the things that they didn't like about living as God's people at that time. The suffering that they had and so forth. Now, here you step forward to today... And what makes for peace? When when Christ comes the second time, he will come doing what? He'll come doing what the Jews wanted him to do the first time. He'll come with a sword. He'll come destroying his enemies. And now here we are in America today and the church has done what? The church has said, anything but the sword Anything but God's no. We're only allowed to hear God's yes. Only the, only the happy parts. Only the, only the things that make for nice sounding peace. And do we know what makes for peace? Even today. Do we know what makes for peace? The, those two things, him coming and dying on the cross and him coming with the sword of victory. They, they come together. They're in him. They're one. They're one in him. He is one person. And when we separate one from the other, we've lost We've lost him. And so how could the people at that time rejoice? How could the people back at the time of Zechariah rejoice? They didn't have either one of those yet. A king will come. They haven't had a king for a long time. He will bring justice. That should send a wave of relief over you. A wave of relief as you think about the injustice in this land. We, God's people, always desire true justice to be done. He will bring salvation. He will draw His people out of the pit of death. And His promise has been sealed by the blood of the covenant the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed. That's how his promise was sealed. Now we get to celebrate remembering that that happened through communion today. The people in Zechariah's time had to look forward to it and remember that that was going to happen. They were pointed to it through the sacrificial system. And so just like them, back in Zechariah's time, today we need this good news of great joy. We need to remember that his promise of protection is for his people. We need to remember the blood that he shed to save us from our sins. We need to see the spreading of the gospel, even though the church is weak in many places. We need to look forward to final justice being done. And we need to look forward to the day when his enemies are made into a footstool for his feet. It's so easy (laughs) to be willing to worship God, willing to rejoice that Jesus has come, willing to look forward to his second coming, but to have that false expectation of what that second coming will accomplish for you. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what you are tempted to make a condition of your ongoing worship and praise of Jesus Christ. But I know that all of us are tempted in certain ways to say, I won't be happy unless I get this cookie. This thing. This is the only thing that I want. This is the thing that will make me happy. You know, I would be happy if God would just let me marry so-and-so. You know, I'll, I'll keep being happy as long as God doesn't Take away my child. Well, you know, if life wasn't so hard, I could be happy. If I just had a little bit more to eat, a little bit warmer, nicer clothes, and a nicer house and a car. And You've ever watched the jerk, you know, the scene where he's going, all I need is this hat and this phone and this lamp, and it just keeps adding things. This is the way we are. You know, I could be happy. I'd, I'd I'd be happy if all I had was—and you just name one thing—and of course you never name just one thing. And also this, and also this microphone, you know, and also my Bible. If God doesn't take these things away from me, then I'll be happy. If God would just take away my struggle with this one sin. If God would just make me successful at work or keep me successful at work. As long as God doesn't make me undergo persecution. Or as long as my persecution that I have to undergo doesn't look like this one thing. As long as I can have comfort in my day. Remember the king who did that? He was happy as long as there was peace in his day. As long as I can, you know, the world can go to hell in a handbasket. As long as I can have a comfortable retirement and die before my kids, I'll be happy. Then I'll rejoice in God. Is that rejoicing in God? No. As long as I can travel, as long as sometime in my life I get to see the world, what is it? There's a million things that we can use as our condition. Or that we use as our excuse. Well, I, you know, I really would be happy. I would rejoice in what God has done if He would just do something. What happened to the Jews is they realized Jesus wasn't going to give them the one thing they wanted. And so they refused to be at peace with him. What will you do when you realize God isn't going to give you the one thing you want? Or when you realize that he is going to take away the one thing you treasure? Remember the parable of the sower. Jesus said in Luke 8, Those on the rocky soil, the seed that fell on the rocky soil, are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. And then also, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But... The good seed. The seed in the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. That's joyful news. Now you can, you can be, you can be a grump all you want about all the other kinds of seed that came first. Well, you know, there was the seed that fell on the path and it got eaten up. And then there was the seed that fell in the rocky soil and it looked good. I thought there was going to be something there that was going to be happy, but no. And then there was the seed that fell among the thorns and, you know, what if that's me? Or you can rejoice. There's good seed in good soil producing good fruit that God has brought about And so we rejoice in it. Our joy is not that there's a Republicat in the White House. Our joy isn't that God will never let us go through financial hardship. Our joy is not that He will find us a pretty woman to marry. Our joy isn't that we won't have to face death or that we'll always look good. We rejoice because God has glorified himself by sending his son to save a people for himself. And we rejoice because he will return. And that's good news. No, we don't know what we'll face before that day arrives. Except that there will be pain. There will be sorrow. There will be difficult work. There will be various temptations. But we know that our hope is not in this life only, but in the one to come. Let's pray.